We're here in the last chapter. And uh, this is a funny ending in some ways. Because what seems, it really is the end, but what seems like an end also seems like the beginning in a really interesting way. The end of Luke sounds almost exactly like the beginning of Luke. It ends with a bunch of people hanging out in the temple waiting for God's promised one. That's how Luke ends. That's actually exactly the way it starts. A bunch of people hanging out in the temple waiting for God's powerful promised one to show up. So in some ways, the end of Luke is like a beginning. Actually, as we look more carefully at Luke, the end of Luke is a beginning. It's an all-new beginning. That's what Luke wants us to see tonight. So uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading huge sections of text about uh, Jesus' life and death. And here at the end, I, I figured I, I should read all the text again. So uh, there's a lot of text here. I mean, you know, this is the really good stuff. That was good stuff. This is the really good stuff. So I'm going to give proper attention to the really good stuff and read all the text. And unfortunately, you can't follow along up there. But if you want to follow around in your Bible, chapter 24 in Luke. Here we go. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? They remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in and looking in, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord's indeed risen. He's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It's I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. All right. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we pray you would show us great things in your law. Above all, Lord Jesus, show us yourself. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, marking an unrivaled streak in the history of RUF at Pitt. Here's the fourth week in a row with a sports illustration. Buster Olney is a uh, ESPN baseball analyst, and he's called Game 6 of the 2011 World Series. Texas Rangers versus St. Louis Cardinals, the greatest game in the history of baseball. He may have changed that after last year's World Series, but if so, I don't want to hear about it. Anyway, uh, it's a funny description in some ways because it was a really messy game. I watched it. Lots of errors, not great pitching. So what made it a classic, an instant classic? Well, it's simple. It's drama. Up 7-4 to four, in the seventh inning, Texas surrendered one run, but they carried a 7-5 lead into the ninth. In the ninth inning, down to their last strike, uh, that would be the last strike of the game, and they're down three games to two, so that would be the last strike of the series, and it's the World Series, so that would be the last strike of the season. In other words, just a little bit at stake on this next pitch. Uh, The Cardinals' David Freeze drills a triple to deep right field, caroms off the wall, scoring two, Cardinals tie it up, place goes nuts. I and my living room go nuts. Um, And... uh, it's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a last strike, big hit, wonderful. Well, in the top of the 10th, uh, Josh Hamilton steps to the plate, MVP candidate, and hits a shot that just yesterday, five years later, landed on the far side of the moon, it seems. <laughs> I mean, he creamed this thing to put Texas up two runs. So going into the bottom of the 10th, Cardinals once again down two runs, 9-7. to seven. They score a run on a routine ground out. But uh, with only one out left in the game, uh, the Cardinals send Lance Berkman to bat. 
At this point, he's about 40 years old, gray-bearded, slower and more hobbled than I am, uh, on a bad <laughs> knee. And uh, again, with two strikes in the game, just one more strike and this game is over, he laces a uh, single into the middle, wide open center field, scoring the tying run. They tie it up again. They manage to finally hold Texas from scoring a run. And in the 11th, David Freeze, the hero from the ninth inning, crushes a home run deep center field. And the announcer says, Freeze in the air to center, and we will see you tomorrow night. In some ways, that doesn't sound very dramatic. We will see you tomorrow night. But when you know that you've been one strike away from your season being over, the fact we get to play again tomorrow is a big deal. We'll see you tomorrow night. And the Cardinals went on to win that World Series. So uh, it's the only time in history that a, any team in the World Series has come back from two different two-run deficits after the ninth inning. It was a great game, very dramatic, and I'm a little biased. Now, uh, here's why I tell you that story, though. Imagine being a fan, a Cardinals fan, at that game. That means you're heavily invested, right? It's a World Series game. We're big bucks to get that seat. And you're down 7-4 in the seventh. And you know how baseball works. And you know the Rangers have a great bullpen. And so you leave. Like lots of fans did. You leave. You walk out of the stadium. You take the metro home. You don't turn on the radio or the TV because you know how that, you know what happened and it hurts and you don't want to exacerbate the disappointment anymore. And you go to bed with the disappointment that we were this close and lost. Now, imagine waking up in the morning, going to work, and again, being afraid to turn on the radio or TV because you don't want to relive the pain, and you get to the office, and it's apparent that you just missed something amazing, because everyone is talking about this amazing, dramatic comeback. And your first thought is actually, because you're a fan, you know baseball, but, but how? you're not supposed to win that game. But how? how? And then your second thought after, like something amazing must have happened. Your second thought is, oh my gosh, what did I miss? That happened to a lot of fans, actually. They left that game. They, they, they couldn't imagine something this amazing happening and then the disappointment of having missed it. Okay, what we're looking at in Luke 24 tonight is like that, okay? Now, I'm not saying baseball is like religion. Uh, yeah, this is an analogy. It's not important, even though I carry a baseball around in my pocket. Um, so, um, an analogy, not not equal in importance. Our account shows a bunch of people who missed it. They weren't looking for it because they weren't expecting it. They weren't expecting this amazing thing that happened for Jesus to rise from the dead because they were reasonable people. Like us. They know how the world works. People don't rise from the dead. The real question then is, after Jesus' death, why are we still playing this game 2,000 innings later? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Naked Jew on the cross. That's what happened. Everyone saw it. Why are we still here playing this game? Christianity's contention and loose contention here in chapter 24 is just one man 
just one has a story completely different than everyone else. That against every reasonable expectation, he beat death. Not by avoiding it, not by uh, outlasting it, but by going through it and coming out the other side. And if that's true, then it changes everything. Very simple message tonight. Luke's trying to tell us, that I'm trying to communicate with you, that the real historical resurrection of Jesus changes everything. So, here's our points for the night. One big one, two small ones. We're going to talk about our Savior, why we can call Him that, uh, the story and the script. Okay? And I'm going to go quickly, so strap up. So, I, I use the word Savior here to s- describe Jesus, and that's significant because as this chapter begins, no one expects Him to be that. The people that go to the tomb go there to do what? To put spices on His dead body. No one in this chapter expects... A resurrected living Jesus. Every single one of them is sad and deeply confused. Because everything to put their hope in is over. They are disappointed. They are confused. Verse 3, they find the tomb empty and they weren't saying, yes, I knew it all along. Instead, they're perplexed. Hey, where's, where's the dead Jesus we came to take care of? And when these angelic beings come to report, hey, why are you looking for him? Uh, you don't find the living among the dead, it tells us they're frightened. Okay, So we have perplexed and frightened. And if you go on and look at other characters, confused and disappointed, and we can add it all up. And yet the chapter ends, the last verse, with them worshiping Jesus. Worshiping Jesus. Faithful Jews don't do that. They don't worship men unless they're really clear that this is God. They've come to the conclusion that Jesus is no, nothing less, no one less, than God himself. Worshiping Jesus, joyful, and blessing God. That's the last verse. How did this happen? How did they go from perplexed, frightened, confused, to worshiping Jesus, joyful, and blessed? In one chapter. That's what happened in this chapter. You got that, right? How did that happen? It's not because they didn't understand how death and life worked. Alright? You need to get out of your head right away. You may be thinking like, well, you know, 2,000 years ago, people were pretty stupid. They're not as smart as we are. We know how death really works. When you're dead, you're dead. Now, they knew how death worked. Maybe better than we did. They knew that dead people don't get up and walk away. That's part of what makes this chapter so challenging. Even when Jesus does show up, they don't believe it half the time. It's not because they didn't understand the implausibility of physical resurrection. They understood that very well. In verses 9-11, through when the women come back and say, Hey... Went to the tomb and it's empty. These people told us he rose from the dead. Uh, they go and, and tell their, their fellow compatriots. And the compatriots, basically the phrase that's used here is, that's an idle tale. Actually, the translation here is, you're talking like a bunch of drunk people. Uh, they don't believe them at all. And uh, what eventually convinces this whole crowd of people that something really radical has happened here is Jesus actually showing up in his physical resurrected body and saying, see, here I am really. A real bodily resurrection happened. You see this most clearly in verses 36 to 43. And uh, it's really interesting. Jesus shows up to this, this couple walking along the road. And uh, as, as they become aware of who 
become aware of who Jesus is, they run seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the people there, hey, I just saw Jesus. And before they can get it out, the people there say, hey, we just saw Jesus. And while they're starting in verse 36, talking about this with each other, verse 36, it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. They're talking about running into Jesus. And Jesus is there like, yeah, that's a good story. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He is there physically. And uh, they are, in verse 37, 38, frightened, disbelieving, troubled, doubts arising. And Jesus says, verse 39, see my hands and feet. It's I myself. Touch me. It It almost reads like a circus account. Like, got some food, I'll eat it for you. Anyone got something for me to juggle? What else do I have to do to show you that this is a real corporeal body? I really... Yes, I know it's hard to believe. You may not understand what cells are yet, but, gentlemen, friends, ladies, yes, they were decaying and dead and fluid was leaking. But by the power of God, it's all reversed. Life overcame death. And uh, in his real resurrected body, Jesus begins to demonstrate to them that he's unlike the rest of us. He lets them poke and prod him until slowly they begin to realize... (laughs) Noogies. I don't know what they were doing. Yeah, it's real. It's real. He's really real. And that's the first key important step to the grand reversal that we see. How do you go from despair and confusion to hope and praising God? They became convinced that Jesus beat death. That uh, they go from preparing Jesus for, for burial to worshiping him in the temple. They go from confusion to confidence in the story, from de- despair and disappointment to a willingness to share this message with the whole world. And it's all because of the first reversal Jesus beat death. Life taking over death. This is really important. It means that this death that Jesus died, which was not an accident, we talked about this, it was intentional, it was personal, it was sacrificial. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was taking someone's place as a willing sacrifice. It means it worked. It means God accepted the sacrifice. It means it wasn't a waste of time. And that God, having accepted the sacrifice, covering the sins of his people, by his great power, raised Jesus from the dead. This is the beginning of an all-new hope, an all-new life, a new beginning. I just recently heard a pastor, uh, Eric Balicki, he's in the area here, use this illustration. If you're in Washington and you go to the Vietnam War Memorial, uh, you can actually get a pretty physical, if you will, metaphorical vision of what death is like. This is cold wall of death, name after name after name of people that have died. And and the wall, if I understand it rightly, is submerged in the ground. If you were to look at it from above, it's like a long, broken scar. A long, ugly, broken scar that runs through the park. Man, that's death. A long, ugly, broken scar that's cold and unrelenting. The wall of death. No one gets away from it. As Eric said, Jesus, first one ever, punched a hole through the wall. And it's the beginning of the reversal. Holes in the wall, and he promises to bring every single one of his children through. Every single one of us. That's the great reversal. That's the new beginning that Jesus aims for. 
Now, it's a hard work because no one believes him. He has to go around and convince them. He has to go and reveal himself and renew them. He does that over and over. He shows up to people, people on the road, people in the room. Uh, See, this is me. Touch me. Let me tell you the story. But he does it. He shows them that he's the death defeater. And he comes and renews them because he's the Savior. He's able to save. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his uh, book, The Grand Miracle. He writes, The grand miracle of the resurrection is the missing chapter of the novel, the chapter on which the whole plot turns. That is why I believe that God in Jesus really has, this is really important, dived down into the bottom of the creation. That is, he took on flesh, he took on our suffering, he took on sin and death, and then he came up bringing the whole redeemed nature on his shoulders. Christ is risen, and so shall we. Peter, for a few seconds, walked on the water. The day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of glorified and obedient men and women, when we can do all things, when we will be what we're supposed to be. Let that sit in for a second. I think right now, for the most part, if it hasn't been revealed to you throughout the year, on the eve of exams and struggles and Easter, you realize you are not what you're supposed to be. You're at least partially aware of your weakness, your frailty, but perhaps you're even more aware of your treachery, your sinfulness, and your selfishness. We are not what we're supposed to be. And perhaps you have some great reclamation plan in mind of how you're going to fix all those things. Listen, Jesus dying for us and rising from the dead is the very best indictment of your reclamation project. You are so broken that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can fix you. That's putting it really harshly, right? Good news. He loves you so much he's willing to do that. He's a Savior that loves you so much he's willing to give his life for you. And he's so powerful, so capable, that you can trust him. He's risen from the dead. That power is at work for you, to you. Lewis also says that this is the missing chapter of the story. Hang with me for eight minutes. I'm going to finish this thing up in eight minutes. I promise. Watch this. Story. Verses 13 through 35, this middle section. These guys walking down the road, deep despair and confusion. Sad, sad, sad. And uh, Jesus sort of tags along, incognito in some way. And uh, it's a really great account. I love this account. It's like he's controlling them in some way. Um, What are you guys talking about? This guy named Jesus? What's that all about? And um, what, this, what this little account it d- demonstrates, I think, is really important. They, they begin this, this trip sad and disappointed. They, they leave, in verse 35, convinced of the story and excited to tell others about Jesus. And what happens is, somewhere on the road, as Jesus tells the story, they find the missing piece. They find the missing piece of the story that makes sense of it all. They, they already know the facts. This is really important. Over and over, they talk about all these things. Verse 14, verse 18, verse 19. They know all the details about who Jesus is and how he died and all the things that happened. And they even know about the empty tomb. Yes, a woman showed up and told us about the empty tomb, and we don't know the thing about it. They know all these things, but they're still confused and skeptical. That's really important. 
Because if you're someone that's trying to piece the facts together, that's great, work on it, but the facts alone are insufficient. You actually have to understand the story. You can know all the facts, not understand the story. And when Jesus begins to talk to them, he begins to explain the plot, the aim, the plan. They, their, their hope is that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. Well, actually, it's a much bigger aim than that. Jesus sets out to redeem all the nations, to bring people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation. That's been the goal of Scripture from the beginning to end. But then in verse 26 and following, he begins to talk about the plan. Was it, this is his words, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary that all these things that perplex you and trouble you, how could, it, how could our king die and be crucified? How, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, was it not necessary that he should suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? These things that confound them are a part of God's plan. The humiliation, the suffering was a part of the plan. And now the glory. And as he goes on in verse 27, he begins to tell them the things concerning himself. You see, the plan is a man. It always was. As Jesus then begins to tell these two individuals the plan, he uses all the Bible, all of it, it says, the Old Testament, the New, well, the New Testament has been written yet, but uh, all the Bible, the Psalms and wisdom books, to talk about himself and how he fulfills all these things. All the scriptures point to Jesus. And uh, in one of two ways. They either show our need for him or show how he answers that need. There's a uh, great little book about this. illustrates it better than anything I know besides actually reading the Bible itself. Advanced summer reading for some of you. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, if you don't have it, I'll be glad to get you one. So I, uh, I actually cannot commend this book highly enough. It's wonderful. So Jesus basically spends this time giving them a long seven-mile Bible study explaining how all the Bible makes sense of him and how he makes sense of all the Bible. Simple illustration, you'll get this one. Imagine working a puzzle, 500 pieces, you're at the beach, it rains all week, you have no intent of ever working another puzzle in your life. Hate those blasted puzzles. But there's nothing there except for some uh, old John Grisham novels. And you decide you'd rather work the puzzle. So you work the puzzle, only some, some incalcitrant five-year-old, like my daughter, ripped the page, the, the cover, off the puzzle. So you actually have a puzzle and you have no idea what you're putting together. That's what these folks are like walking down the road. They have all the pieces. They don't have the picture. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what the picture's like. It's me. And so when you read the text of the Bible, you need to realize that what it's describing is the person of Jesus. When you come to understand the story, you'll come to understand Him. When you come to understand Him, you'll come to understand the story. What you need to know is this story, chiefly, is not about you. It's not about you. It really isn't. You you may go looking into it, trying to figure out how it will best help you, give you wisdom, or bless you. And that's not the worst motive of all, but simply put, when you understand it's about Jesus and what Jesus has done for you, uh, then you will not only understand it, but you will grow in confidence in the story and you'll be able to take your place in it. Because you do have a place in it. This is my last point. This story... Luke 24 is not over. It's really interesting. It's going on and on, but the story ends really open-ended. And uh, in other ways, in other words, the curtain is still up. The curtain hasn't 
fallen, no one's come out to take a bow yet. It's really open-ended, and at this point, what Luke, the author, does is actually say, okay, um, it looks like the story's over, We're we need audience participation. And someone raises their hand like, no, 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 not you. Like, no, all of you, all of you, all of you, up on the stage, everyone take your place in the play. That's what Luke is doing here. Everyone take your place in the play. You all have a part to play. And the story becomes a script. And the script is handed to you. And the author of the play, the author of the story, Jesus says, here you go. Here's your part. And it, and it means you have to understand the story, but let, let me help you figure it out. Okay? Do this in a few minutes. In verse 36, these followers of Jesus are standing there uncertain. Okay? Jesus keeps showing up, and uh, we, we think it's real, but we're not sure. You've seen him, right? Yeah, yeah, I saw him. You've seen him? Yes. You've said to him that you've seen him? Yes. Oh, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in their midst, and he's like, yeah, here I am. And uh, this is what happened in verse 36. And at this point, what Jesus helps them do is understand his resurrected nature. He helps them understand this is real. And he begins, in some ways, to rehearse with them the resurrection reality. First part of the script, rehearse the resurrection reality. See, they are full of fear. They are full of troubles. They are full of doubts. The te- those are the words of the text. I'm not making that up. When, when they see Jesus, they have doubts. But they don't see them, they have doubts. They're full of fears. And um, Jesus, basically, his answer to that is to show them himself. Here I am. Give me something to eat. You want to poke around on me? Like, I'm real. I really did beat death. I am here. Jesus is saying, the answer to your fears and doubts is me. Me and my physical resurrection, I beat death, I am for you, I am here, I am present. This is what it means to rehearse resurrection reality. Listen, if you've been coming to RUF for weeks, months, years, and you've never really figured out why we keep doing this, like, why does this old man keep talking out of this book, and why do you keep saying the same kind of things? It's, it's actually, here you go, this is the Why? We're convinced convinced that the best answer to your fears and anxieties, worries and doubts is to serve you Jesus over and over. That's what Jesus does in this text. To his fearful, afraid, anxious people who think they may die, actually. They kill Jesus, they may come for us. Jesus gives them himself over and over. The very best context for you to grow into the person you're supposed to be it's a context of security a place of security let me let me tell you about security knowing that there's a god in the flesh who willingly died for you out of love for you and now reigns and in the midst of your weakness comes and whispers peace to your anxious fearful heart That's about the most secure setting I can imagine. It really is. He knows our hearts. That's what Jesus does. He shows up to these fearful people and he says, Peace. Peace. I I know you're afraid. I know it doesn't make sense. I am here with you. I give you myself. I give you my peace. Friends, that's your script. That's what you're called to rehearse. To remember and rehearse the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's for you. 
and to, re- to remember his lines. Not yours, his. Have you noticed that Jesus pretty much says the same thing over and over in this text? Three times he says something like, was it not necessary that the Son of Man suffer and die and rise from the dead? He says it like on three different occasions. He's explaining to them. And uh, frankly, this is the pitch and catch of Christianity. This is the daily... Uh, Pick your analogy. You're not a sports person. You're a food person. Okay, this is your bread and butter. Uh, I don't know what else you want me to do, but this is it. Over and over, Jesus basically tells them, look, this was God's plan. This is what had to be done. It was necessary for the Son of Man to die for you, but I've risen from the dead. I've beaten it, and I'm for you. And uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to get. And it's really hard to understand. And, and Jesus makes that clear. He, he says in verse 45, I had to fulfill all these things. And he begins to explain it to them so they understand. Do you understand? Do you understand this? That what Jesus did was necessary. It was necessary if there was going to be a way through that wall of death. Okay? There's no way for us to get through it. It was necessary because of our sin and our selfishness and our unwillingness to change. It was necessary. It was not necessary from his end. He didn't have to do anything. But out of love, he did so. He did what needed to be done to make a way for us, to put a hole through the wall by sending himself through the wall for us. The last part of the script is simple. Once we, once we understand what it is, that we're rehearsing the resurrection reality, we're reminding ourselves of His lines, that He did this for us, it was necessary, but He did it out of love for us. We get to share it with the world. We relate it to the world. We act out the play on the stage of our lives so the world can see it. This is verse 47. That repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations. And friends, what, what Jesus is simply saying here is if you, if, you, if you know this, if you believe it, if it's yours, you will want to invite people to see this play. You want them to understand it. You won't try to make them get it because you can't. But you invite them in and say, hey, I think there's a way. I think there's a different way. I'd like for you to come and see it. And uh, that's what we've been doing all year. Let me finish this up. We're 2,000 innings into this game. Okay. After the death of Jesus, 2,000 innings. And we keep playing. Because we're convinced that Jesus did something that no one else has ever done before. That he went through death and came out the other side. And so we keep believing and rehearsing and sharing. If you're here and you're not sure that's what you believe, that's okay. We are so glad you're here. We really are. If you've been here week after week, thank you even more for persevering with us. I just want to encourage you to do one thing. Be willing to talk to us about it. We would love to talk. If you hear me saying what I've said and you're like, that all sounds good, but you do know you're talking about a dead person rising from the dead, right? Yeah, I realize that. I do. I live across from the cemetery. Haven't seen anyone come out of there yet. I get it. I get it. Hey, if you want to talk about these things, we would love to talk about these things with you. Uh, but also, if this is what you believe, own it, believe it, embrace it. Jesus did this for you. He didn't have to. He chose to out of love. And uh, it's Easter. We get to do this this weekend. We get to remember afresh that we have a Savior who loves us, 
who went to the cross for us and who now reigns for us. And he is able to save. Some of you right now are thinking, no, no, I've just got to make it. No, listen, he is able to save. Him, you, he's able to save you. He's at work. He loves you. He cares for you. All right, let me pray. You know what? It's late. I'm going to close completely. Okay? If anybody wants to stay and sing a song that Colin may play that we might be able to find the words to, I may let that happen after this. But, but this is our closing prayer. <laughs> <laughs>